Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, hey everyone, welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as in this episode, I get interviewed by Ian Harvey. Now, Ian does a podcast called Stuff That Matters Now. And so he asked me to sit down and share with him a bit about my own journey. So I thought I'd put that audio up here as an episode of Seeds as well. He's done more than 30 interviews with people who are doing some really cool stuff in New Zealand. So you might want to check out his podcast as well. There's links in the show notes. Hi, everyone. I'm Harv, Ian Harvey, founder of Collective Intelligence, and this is Stuff That Matters Now. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm in Christchurch, and this podcast is entitled Who is Stephen Moe? <laughs> and we were just uh, having a discussion uh, in preparation for this, and I thought, no, we need to press the button because uh, we, we were going to be finishing the podcast uh, before we started. So, Stephen, welcome. Thank you for agreeing for me to interview you. Uh, as we said, it's déjà vu because I'm thinking maybe 18 months ago, might be somewhere around there, you interviewed me in this room with the same sort of gear because uh, why I'm really intrigued with this interview is that Stephen has helped us get started with our podcast series, helping us with the gear, what to do, interviewed me, uh, and uh, yeah, so welcome, Stephen. Thank you. It's really great to be here, and I, I'm really excited because when I look at the gear, it's exactly the same equipment that I have, <laughs> literally the microphones, the recorder, like it's the same setup, so you've done really well. Taken some good advice, maybe. <laughs> I, I got some good advice, and I'm trying not to be nervous sort of interviewing the person that not taught me but introduced me to the actual real live and and that was at a uh that was at that um event in Levin. it, it was the unconference, unconference the social enterprise unconference unconference yep, yep. and uh you run a you ran a session and i sat right up the front and i was looking at all this gear and going here it is this is this thing live so yeah well that was one of my hopes with the podcast so i'm doing one called seeds was that other people would listen and then they would get inspired to go out and create their own podcasts and that's exactly what you've done so it's it's really quite special for me to be here seeing you now as you know the next generation taking the next it on because gen- I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so young <laughs> look it's it's the, the the guys in the office laugh you know when they when i first started off they would turn the machine on and go has he actually got anything on there? Because technically, I am hopeless. I'm okay once I use it enough, yeah, right. But it's anything. But just the initial stages, and you know, I had the odd freeze setting up and going. Now, where does this go? And where does mm. that go? And I actually like taking the gear with me around the country. I like doing them live and going into people's places and so forth. And yeah. so I've had to get better at it. But the gear is really heavy mm. to cart around, yeah. and it causes havoc going through airports. But the audio quality will be much higher. It's and I always higher. think, in my show anyway, I want to respect the listener so that they can't tell the difference between a Radio New Zealand yep. interview and this, because you could get your iPhone out and you could record some yep. audio, but it wouldn't be the same quality. And, and we looked at that. We nearly went down that, that track of going, you know, oh, we can do this for, you know, nothing. And mm. and then we listened to them and 
Uh, look, I'm, I'm, I've got hearing loss, but even I could pick up the difference in mm. the in the audio. But also like the setup when you're sitting up, mm. it gets you in the mood and so forth, and then you get the thing at the end of winding down, all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, Stephen, let's just kick off with congratulations on becoming an Edmund Hillary Fellow, uh, and well done. Thank you, and same to you, I understand. Yes, but this is my <laughs> podcast, so, you, you know. Uh, and I, one of the things we're going to go into today is that um, why would a lawyer mm-hmm. uh, become a fellow? And, uh, and I'm interested in your transition to where you're in now, mm-hmm. because you still sort of look like a lawyer, mm-hmm. but you sort of act differently as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I'm really interested to dig into the fellowship because a lot of people don't know what it is, and so we'll dig into that and, and what this thing is, what you're hoping to get out of it. Uh, I'm really interested in this transition from when you trained you know, as a lawyer and then come into this space. Mm-hmm. So what was the thing that triggered you to get to become a lawyer in the first place? Well, the first thing you have to start out with is my accent. I think people, when they're listening, they'll be wondering sort of where he's from and that type of thing. And it actually, my story interweaves back to my parents' story. Mm-hmm. So my parents were, were from America, um, but actually back in the 1960s, they were some of the first Peace Corps volunteers So that's something that John F. Kennedy set up, and they went as volunteers to South America, to Chile in particular. And now what I'm doing today, I've realized that this is an echo in many ways of my own parents' background and origins. And so I learned a lot from their own views and ways of approaching the world. Um, But we moved to New Zealand. So where in the States were they from? My dad was born in California, Mm -hmm. and my mother was actually born in Panama. So, oh. yeah, quite a unique background. Right. Yeah, but she had American origins as well. So, so the Peace Corps, mm-hmm. uh, one, of our, one of our members, Nick Lewis, was in the Peace Corps. And, look, I can't remember the country, but it was a fairly marginal, when I say marginal, it was a, it was a war zone. Mm-hmm. And he had to get out of there. He was there for quite a long time, maybe yeah. 18 months as a young man. Mm-hmm. And... He grew the long beard and was, you know, and in Yemen, it was in Yemen. Mm. And he said it was a really formative time mm. of his life because he'd done the traditional thing uh, in New York and then went on this Peace Corps thing, mm. changed him forever. Well, it was the same for my parents. So, But bear in mind, they were some of the first cohorts to go from the state. So this is like 1967, yep. 68, like really, really early on. Um, and for my dad, it was an alternative to going to the Vietnam War. So it was quite a, a, a big step, you know, to to not go with his friends off to Vietnam. And this was an amazing alternative that, right. that he was taught Spanish right. and moved to Chile and basically was helping um, fishermen establish cooperatives so that they could sell their fish for a higher price rather than I come back with one boatload, but if we collectively come together, then we can get a much higher price through a cooperative. So, yeah, they have had a fascinating life story. They went on to work with the Quinault Indian tribe up near Seattle, Washington. And my dad did some consulting in Africa and always with a fisheries bent, though. He's a marine biologist. And that's what brought us to New Zealand in the mid-1980s. He was brought over to raise salmon. 
So salmon require cold water. And so Norway, the west coast of the U.S., and New Zealand, and Chile, those are all places where you can raise salmon. So who, who bought them out? Uh, my dad got a job out here um, with a company. It was actually on the Waitaki River near Oamaru. Right. So that was where we first moved to. And uh, so I was a young child, basically. I've kept my accent, but we moved here, you know, when I was seven, eight years old. So, yeah, grew up in New Zealand, even though I have a lot of international background as well. Yeah. Mm. And because um, I remember that, that time when that uh, uh, that was developing, there were some... Uh, government funding going into those projects to develop those companies with the salmon and so forth. And mm-hmm. I think some of them actually gone on and, and done pretty well long term. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, m- my dad was involved in the very beginnings of them. Yep. And then kind of he did other things to do with South America. Yep. Um, and as a child, I, you know, we used to eat salmon all the time and I just thought it was normal, but <laughs> turns out it is not. <laughs> so so then you've, uh, and look, we've got some members of ours now working really uh, heavily in the genetics of salmon, and mm-hmm. it's quite interesting. And, and uh, they uh, gave me some different salmon to taste. It was vastly different, different colours, mm-hmm. you know, different taste, and, yeah, and, it was and, really interesting. And that was part of what my father was involved in was what you feed the salmon affects the skin color, yep. which then affects how much you can sell it for, particularly in Japan, where it's used for sushi and, right. you know, like the cuts need to have a certain texture and a certain color yep. that looks like salmon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends what you feed them, basically, in captivity. Yeah. So I'm by no means an expert there, but that was the origin. So we came to New Zealand. Um, we lived in Chile for a year as well in the late 1980s when Pinochet was mm-hmm. still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then came back. I had my high school years here in Christchurch, and then I went to Canterbury University um, from 1995 to 2001 with one year in Japan as well. The law was, why was that of an interest to you? Well, I'd always enjoyed writing, and I'd always enjoyed um, history and, and reading. So I think this is a case for many lawyers, actually. We don't naturally fit within sort of a sciences bent, and we're usually okay at reading and writing. Yep. And it, it's kind of an odd thing, but you end up at university and you do usually like history and sociology and all these sorts of subjects, and then you do a paper in law. And it's it's a little bit competitive to get into second year. So if you are given a place in second year, then it's like, oh, well, maybe I should take that up then. Right. So that I wasn't doing it to change the world or anything like that. Um, but I did do well in it and came out um, with a degree that um, got me a job at Russell McVeigh in Wellington. So that was in 2001. So I I was there for three years and doing big corporate type of transactions. And is that, like like they talk about the sweatshops of those big companies, is that that what it's like? Yeah, it can be. In New Zealand, um, for people listening, it's, it's a completely different scale. So after being in Wellington, I left and moved to London. And in London, the law firms are vastly bigger. (laughs) So the biggest firms in New Zealand would have a couple hundred people, which is really big. But I worked for a law firm called Norton Rose Fulbright, and there was about 3,500 lawyers just in that firm. So the London office, I think we had seven or 800 in one building. 
And I can tell you many, many stories about the fact that we had apartments in the lower levels of the building where if you were working late, you could book them to go sleep for a couple hours so that you could get up again and continue doing the urgent deal that needed to be done by 9 a.m. Right. And, you know, there was a restaurant in the building and you could go and have your dinner. You could, it was very easy to work long hours. Right. Mm. And, and that was encouraged? That was encouraged, yes. Right. Yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, that's, you know, you're measured on your billable units. Yep. So, you know, there's six minutes. Yeah. So there's 10 units in an hour. Yeah. And then, you know, if, if you bill more, then you're going to get a better salary and you're going to get more career advancement. So there's a lot of, there's, it's a high pressured place. And after about 12 years in that law firm, I realized that I was maybe starting to sell out my own entity, my own identity, um, through what I was doing. So basically I was three years in London and then I speak Japanese. So I moved to Tokyo and I helped set up the Tokyo office and I was there for four years. And then I moved to Sydney and I was in the Sydney office for four years. So again, there's 55 offices around the world. This is a 24 seven type of environment where you're getting emails all the time. It's extremely exciting. It's a team coming together. But at the end of the day, you do feel like you're at the end of the phone to a very wealthy person telling them they can buy another Maserati. It's not very fulfilling in the long run. Yeah. So kind of realizing that heading to the end of my 30s and realizing maybe it's time to head back to New Zealand. Interesting space, isn't it? Uh, Because lots of people just like that scene. Mm Mm-hmm. I saw, I was on the periphery of a argument uh, uh, two weekends ago, and it was a subdivision near a beach, uh, and I won't say where, but, so it's sort of, but it, was, it was in the Wairapa, and uh, this development had gone well. At the moment, lots of people are, are buying up property, interest rates are low, and so forth, and wealthy people are buying up property. And it would appear another subdivision was opening that people weren't expecting and it was going to block their views. And uh, and I just, I, I wasn't in the meeting, but a meeting was called in this coastal town. Um, and there are people yelling at each other and calling each other liars and so forth. And I thought, man, look at this. This is, the world is ablaze with COVID. There are economies crumbling and we've got rich people here yelling at each other about their view potentially being blocked. Mm. And it did occur to me to walk into the building and go, oh, for God's sake, get a life. Mm. You know, this is, is, this, is this worth yelling about? Mm. And it was quite, a, I don't think I would have ever had that view before, but mm. I just thought, really? Grow up, you bloody children, and, you know, work this out without threatening to bring in lawyers and calling each other liars and so mm. forth. And it was... I felt really disappointed, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're what you're identifying is that I think we're, there's paradigm shifts occurring right now, where we're moving from an extractive economy towards hopefully a regenerative economy. Yep. So there's this clash of paradigms of ways of thinking, and so that's what we're seeing. And an outworking of that would be that meeting, um, where there's still the old mindset, which is a very fixed mindset, and it's a very much how much profit can I make 
how much can I derive from this entity? How much can I use it? As opposed to a, hopefully where we're headed to, which is more regenerative, how can we do business in a way that actually gives back in some way and isn't extractive and actually cares about the employees? And so that all starts to merge with terms like social enterprise, impact investing, B Corp, you know, all of these things are symptoms, or not in a bad way, in a good way, that there are sh- shifts happening. And I think the next generation is getting it quicker than the previous generation. So for my generation, Stephen, I, I, uh, I turn 61 tomorrow. Happy birthday to me. Oh, and uh, I, so I struggle with some of my generation that, uh, and I'm very fortunate to live and work around lots of young people and lots of people who about the world and making a difference. Mm. And uh, I'm a lot more conscious as a result. And it's really just from hanging out from these people because going back 20 years ago, I was quite a narrow-minded get. And uh, and thought capitalism was fine and all that stuff, right? So I struggle sometimes mixing with my old crew, who I love, but our worldview is so different. Mm-hmm. Does that ever affect you? Mm. It does, yeah, for sure. And oftentimes I'll be giving, I'm in Queenstown tomorrow, for example, giving a talk about purpose-driven entrepreneurs and different structures that you can adopt. But I know there will be some people in the room who are thinking, I want to make as much money as possible from my venture, from my business, so that I can then decide to give away some of my profits to charities and things. So it's just, it's a different way of thinking. And, and I think everybody's on a journey. And so I'm glad to hear of your journey, you know, that it is possible to shift gear. It's possible to look at the world in a new way. And for me, that happened about five years ago when I came back from Sydney and arrived in Christchurch, deliberately chose this firm called Perry Field, which is kind of a medium-sized firm. We've got about 50 people. So it's not at the bigger end, but it's also not just one or two people in a And in so a what, what was the, what was the, things that for you to choose for me i felt like if i went back to one of the bigger firms which would be the natural place the natural landing spot given that i'd done a succumbent at caltex for a year you know i'd, I'd done major deals with many zeros <laughs> that would have been the more natural place to yep. arrive but i felt like in in a bigger firm i would be added as a cog within a machine that was already running and that I would just slot in, and it would be about how many units I was generating. Whereas coming here, I, I made a, a harder choice in, in some ways, but I think a more soul-filling choice, yep. which is I want to work out how I can give back, how I can actually use my legal skills and the background that I've got in a way that advances our discussion about, for example, legal structures in New Zealand so that we can empower more people to have a paradigm shift of thinking in the way that we're talking about. So it's, it, I think if I'd gone into a bigger firm, it would have been much more of the same as my previous life. I, I possibly would have been paid more. But, you know, you get to a certain point and you realize that on your deathbed, you're not going to look back and wish that you had more zeros in your bank account. You're going to look back and think about how did I have impact? How did I hopefully add value in some way to our world. 
Was that an epiphany or was that a, a gradual burn for you to get there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it was probably a gradual burn. Um, yeah. When I first arrived back here, I thought, well, now I can act for overseas companies coming to invest in New Zealand. You know, I can do overseas investment office applications and that yep. type of thing. And then the Social Enterprise World Forum was held in yes. Christchurch in yep. 2017. And I remember I was up at Mount Hutt skiing, and I thought I could put together all of the articles I've been writing on this topic of social enterprise, and it would, it would make a book. And so that's what I did. <laughs> so it's a very short book, but it's called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, a Legal Handbook. And it outlines all the things that I think people need to know about how to structure your ventures. And so through that, I then started meeting more people, a little bit like you with the podcast. You know, you start meeting more yep. people, yep. and it starts changing your ways of thinking. You know, you've had Tim Jones on, I think, and, yep. you know, someone like that. You know, you get his perspective, and um, talking with Alex at the time was at Akina. So, you know, hearing his perspective. And, and at the same time, I started the podcast. So Seeds started at the World Forum, so 2017. So just three years ago, basically. And what, what were the standout for the, at the World Forum for you? What were the anything that really stuck? Well, I think it was just looking around the rooms and realizing how many people were on the same page. Yep. Because up until then, it had been like, well, I'm writing an article, and I don't know, if, is there anybody else out right. there right. Who's, who's thinking in this way? So seeing that many people you know, in a theater with that many in one place was really awesome You know, to, to develop a... We're in, it, we're in it together. We're a cohort. We may yep. leave from here, and someone will be in Tauranga, someone will be in Invercargill, but we had this experience, and how is each of us going about trying to create a more generative world through business? Yeah, it's interesting, because I look at the... I listened to Alex Hannant and Anna Gunther, actually, were both in Wellington giving a TED Talk, and it was TEDx, and it was tiny, and a tiny event, and Anna Gunther gets up and she starts talking about this crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. I'm going, what's this, what's this crowdfunding? I'm going, Didn't, couldn't, you know. And, and it was a real stretch for me. Mm. Going, what? How does this work? And, and then Alex Hannett gets up and starts talking about social enterprise. And I'm going, what is this? Both of them, when they talked, it, it resonated with me. Something went off. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those talks that I tried to describe what it was five minutes later. I couldn't. I just grasped enough to go, that's a thing. That's something I'm interested in. And I badgered both of them straight afterwards to join Collective Intelligence and so pleased that you know, got them on board. And uh, uh, both of those two were a big influence on me of just breaking up the way that we could do things. I think the crowdfunding was a bigger stretch for me, going, okay, so I'm putting money into this stuff. In those days, it, was, it wasn't commercial. It was for, you know, uh, not fun things, but it wasn't commercial. Mm-hmm. It is now. And the social enterprise thing, people started talking about the social entrepreneurs. I'm going, what is this social entrepreneur thing? Mm-hmm. It sounds a bit wanky, you know. And then Alex Hannon said to me one day, well, but you're a social entrepreneur. And I went, what? <laughs> and it was like coming out without knowing that you're gay, sort of thing, going, what? What? And You're in the club. You didn't even know it. I didn't but... even know it. I didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah. So, look, it was, it was uh, those two were the uh, big... And then meeting Arnaki, who just 
yeah. messes with your brain because mm-hmm. he just, you know, I'm not even sure if he thinks, but stuff comes out and you go, where does that come from? So I think those three were the ones that disturbed me the most, that there was a different way. Yeah. And well, then I, you, I can completely understand. So the three A's that Anna, Alex, and Anake, right? There you go. <laughs> um, I hadn't seen that. But, yeah, but you're right. And all three of them, I agree, are doing amazing work within New in Zealand. In different stuff, huh? In, in, in different stuff. But they're examples to me of what I, I'm trying to be, which is uh, you know, calling people to this new paradigm of thinking saying there's a different way, look over here, you know, the, the, the old conceptions have their place, but actually there's new ways we can think about this as well. So, yeah, I, I have respect for all three of those. And yeah, What's the biggest pushback you get from lawyers from the, in the law profession? What's the thing that they just doesn't sit with them? You mean from lawyers who are just generally? Just generally. Well, so the hard thing is that we all have <laughs> budgets to meet and, you know, we have to have a certain number of things that, you know, so the world works in a way which means that I've been able to choose this career path now where I can focus on purpose because my driver isn't the same as what it used to be. And I think that there's actually a lot of lawyers out there who would like to do more and support more. But there is a lot of pressure from within organizations that, you know, we need to keep our billable units up and, and that type of thing. So most of the ones, most of the people that I see do it as pro bono projects or, you know, helping outside of their traditional role. So is this company happy to have you here? Yeah. Because, yeah, they, because, they, because they, why? Well, they were started uh, more than 70 years ago. So they, the two founders, the Mr. Perry and Mr. Field, like they were real people, and they had traditionally done a lot in the community sector for charities. And so I've come in and I guess been able to expand the vision beyond just looking at traditional charities. You know, there's about 28,000 registered with charity services. And I've said, actually, what we're talking about is a, a different word, which is purpose. And purpose is the umbrella term that I tend to use. Purpose and impact, those are my two favorite words. But the purpose often gets outworked through charity, so the not-for-profit side, but it can also be outworked through for-profit, which is the more social enterprise side. And I view them in some ways as flipping the coin. They're both about purpose. They're both about impact. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, the, the model I really enjoy uh, is B Corp and mm-hmm. we're about to recertify at the beginning of next year and we're nervous mm-hmm. to go through that again and uh, and it's interesting having that and even though it's an American model 90 something percent of it still is relevant here there's some there yeah. that's not but it's, there's enough so you know you ignore that once you get into it mm-hmm. But I cannot get over how much that influences how we operate because we will often go, so as a B Corp, is that congruent with where we're heading? Mm-hmm. And it's it's been fabulous to go. There would there would have been times we'd go, do we go this way or this way? And go, well, a B Corp, okay, cool, it's clear, we go this yeah. way. Yeah. And, and it's great having that model there. Well, I think it's a great tool. Um, definitely as an assessment to be able to say we care about all of these things because there's a lot there's a lot of questions that they ask you have to think about it you know it's not just a light easy answer 
Um, and yeah, I've endorsed what they do completely. What I've done um, with others is said, actually, what can we learn from B Corps within a New Zealand context? So if we can put in the show notes some links um, with Akina and the Law Foundation, we came out with a paper about a year and three months ago yep. where we were looking. We interviewed about 20, 25 oh, social... I remember that. It was a big piece of work, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it took nine months to write. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was five of us who co-wrote it, yep. um, and there was a lot of thought going into that. But basically what we were questioning there is could we actually empower the ecosystem by having a legal structure which was set apart for, you know, I'm using quote marks, social enterprise. Um, I'm actually moving away from the term social enterprise these days because I think social is a little bit too limited. I want to talk about, you know, environmental and cultural and many other types of impact as well. Which but, actually is embraced within social enterprise, but the name doesn't necessarily explain Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So more and more I'm using the word impact. So yeah. the impact company or impact enterprise, because I think that's actually what we're talking about. And there's a paper I just gave you a copy of where we're looking at stewardship models. And yeah, in that we talk about impact as the key word. And I talked with Louise Aiken about that from Akina, and she, I, I think she would say, yes, I, I tend to agree with you that it's, it's probably a better word to use as impact rather than social enterprise. Because the beauty is that in New Zealand, we can learn from what's been done overseas. We can adapt it, adopt it here, but with a Te Ao Māori perspective. Yes. And so that's what really makes it uh, exciting conversation to me yep. because if we could get the right people on board, we have the chance to build something here that would be an example to the entire world <laughs> as a small nation that can make changes. We could actually come out with some new things that lead the way that other countries then look at because we, we have the potential to adopt a second or a third generation model of uh, impact enterprise, you know, looking at the benefit corporations, which is the legal form used in the States. You know, Italy has a form. There's a community interest company structure in the UK. So it's it's possible that we could actually leapfrog over what other nations have done and get to a place that is truly world-leading. Because of our relationship with our indigenous people is stronger than most other countries, if not all other countries, mm-hmm. doesn't say it's perfect and we know that, but leveraging their... Because I know within our business, whenever we adopt Māori values, we go better. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we have a lot of Māori influence within collective intelligence. Mm-hmm. We would like a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know whenever we embrace and they teach us how to use their, I'll, I'll use the word models, but their values, mm-hmm. uh, and you embed that in the business, it goes better. Mm-hmm. You know, a bit like the B Corp thing is that B Corps generally, profit-wise, profit go better than a non-B Corp in, a, in the same field, mm-hmm. which is... A, takes a bit of getting your head around. Yeah. So do you, do you know what I think is happening here? I think that it's these paradigms colliding that I was talking about before. And the old paradigm was very much based on how much can I get out for me individually. Yep. Very Western-focused, individualistic, profit-driven, you know, 1980s, greed is good. I'm really 
overly characterizing it, but you get the it's, point. Uh, yeah, There's that way of thinking, which probably doesn't have much time for the concept of spirituality, for example, yep. or for manakitanga, or yep. for kaitiakitanga, yep. stewardship, you know, that we're actually here as guardians for the future of our children rather than inheritors of past wealth of our parents. So it's a, a real mindset shift, you know. But the other paradigm that we're talking about in social enterprise, the B Corps movement, you know, all of these things, impact investing, they're all examples of this new paradigm of thinking, which isn't so much focused on how much can I personally benefit, how much profits can I derive from my own comfort in an individualistic way, but asking how, how are we working together as a community? Mm. How is this activity going to impact not just the current employees, but it's going to impact my great-great-grandchildren. And when you start wearing those sorts of lenses, then it's, it makes complete sense that Te Ao Māori would have many things to teach us. Because in, in that way of looking at the world, you know, your tipuna is there and, and your mokopuna is there. You know, there's, there's way deeper ways of thinking rather than just how, you know, Stephen Moe, yep. that's the important thing as an individual. Yep. Yeah, it, it's much more about the connections. And, you know, just as one simple example is the term whānau. You know, I used to think of it as, well, that means family. But I think it's a much bigger conception. You know, your collective intelligence, for example, all of your members, in, in a way, they're all members of that network of interrelationships. So we're looking at changing the name of members to whānau. Right, okay. Right? Yeah. Because I thought members is a transaction, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not a transaction. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot more than that. And I, we don't have a, we don't have an English word that I know that describes what we want. Mm -hmm. But Maori do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a classic. So I'm going. Uh, you know, that's a classic example, right? So we look at our members as whānau. Mm -hmm. And so we, we're starting to actually change a whole lot of our messaging over the next 12 months. And we'll be, and we've got some great mentors to help us infuse this so that it's not tokenism, mm -hmm. that it's actually uh, embedded in the values of what we do. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that, that is a potential, is that word tokenism, that it just becomes, and I've, I've reflected on this recently because I've helped organize conferences. And uh, fortunately, it hasn't been the case in the conferences that I've been involved in. But I see sometimes maybe people say, well, we need to have some sort of a karakia. Let's get somebody in and they can do it. And, you know, it's a short little intro. And then, oh, who are we going to get to do it at the end? And it's like, where's the depth here? You know, ask that person to be on the panels as well. Yeah. You know, let's, let's really truly recognize the depth here rather than it being a surface thing and a ticking the box that, yeah, it's okay. We, we had somebody say a welcome. And, and look, it's something I'm, I'm really mindful of and we have actually worked hard to try and get in place and haven't, mm. is that all our, all our facilitators are white and we would love to have Maori facilitators. And I've tried numerous times and we haven't got there yet. We will get there. Mm. Uh, and and it won't be to once again, it won't be tokenism, but it's something I'm really excited about actually bringing up. Yeah. And a lot of our facilitators are very strong in... Uh, the Maori values. Mm. Uh, 
So that's that's something we're working on. I just want to go back to a, 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 a thing you were talking about before about this paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. So I've I've got this thing in my I, I I get things in my mind that I play with and and so forth. And so one of the things I'm playing with at the moment when people talk about different um, scenarios, I say, "What's the equation? What's the equation we're using here?" Mm-hmm. So if you look at the equation of GDP, we can have a really strong D- GDP, and people will be homeless, and uh, you know a whole lot of things. Turning to customers, but the GDP is fine, mm-hmm. and so I look at that. That's a, that's an equation, and uh, it hasn't worked as an equation because yep. the world is a lot more complex than a GDP now. And I think that uh, I'm really interested in, and I think a lot of our equations have not been complex enough. Mm. And so when you, uh, you know, the Mari perspective of an equation, and I'm using it as a, you know, embraces whole range of things from environmental to ancient to in the future and all that sort of stuff right and our equations have been very short and brittle mm. and i'm really interested and, and so i'm challenging people to say tell me what's the equation you're using mm. here and and i i like that so that's something i'm playing with at the moment yeah well i'd love to riff off of that because the way i think of it is the old paradigm would have been harv's got one Stephen's got one. One plus one, plus one equals that's two. two. Cool. And you have your one, and I have my one, and that's it. <laughs> and and it's a very limited perspective. You know, um, I think where we're headed, I hope, is that we start to see beyond that, and we go actually, the one from you and the one plus from me. What if that could equal four? You know, what if there's other measures that we have ignored? And the context for giving this example is that I'm the chair of something called Community Finance, which is all about social housing here in New Zealand. So we've just closed uh, raising $40 million for that. Um, we had Generate KiwiSaver, who've put in $20 million, and Tyndall Foundation put in $5 million. So we've gotten a lot. Like, it's a real thing. It's not, it's not small numbers. And that's now going to build housing um, through Salvation Army for families in Auckland. So that, to me, is an example where the investors are coming in. And traditionally, they would have said, well, what's our financial return? But instead, they've been able to open their eyes to the new paradigm, to the new way of thinking, and say, not only are we going to get a financial return of X percentage, but we also recognize the value that comes from a family being in a stable, dry, clean, green, energy-efficient home for the employment that will result for the parents for the stability of the child who's going to school and and regularly getting education, um, for the solar panels on the top of the roof, which are you know helping to reduce the amount of energy. So the and rather the, than and the, the medical bills will drop. Yeah, the need for for you know that's that's direct correlation. There'll be less uh, of that. Uh, will go to jail. Or there's a whole range. It's, it's all a, these flow-on impacts. Yeah. And traditionally, we would have said, yeah, but what's our percentage interest rate that we'll get back on that investment? So this is the, the whole area of impact investing, which I'm doing a lot in, as you can probably tell. Um, but the point is that you're looking with the new paradigm or the new lenses at an investment opportunity. And rather than just looking at it as a sum of what interest rate can we get back, Going beyond that, and particularly now in a low interest rate environment mm. where the rates are so low, would you like to take that million dollars that you have? Let's say it's a community foundation or something. 
put it in a term deposit with a bank where ultimately the profits are going offshore to an Australian parent or take that million dollars and put it into an investment that actually has in mind giving back through what's being built. So it's this regenerative sort of economy rather than extractive economy. So the regenerative term, so I, I've, I'm familiar with it from a, from a farming point of view, which is something that um, uh, we utilise with our small block that we run now. And the thing with, and going back to that equation, uh, Stephen, mm-hmm. regenerative is really complex equation. And the farming that I was good at was a very measurable, clear-cut, simplistic. The key was to make it as simple as possible. You do this and this and this and you get this. You never once measured the negative impact. You never put that into the equation of the environmental uh, or any of those things. It was about this KPI of growing this and you know and it was and the problem is when you get good at it you get addicted to it and you get this wonderful kick and the 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 problem with it has been is that the real net profit has been static and the costs keep on ramping up the banks love it because they lend more money the chemical the, the outfits that provide the chemical and the fertile they love it you know so there's lots of people uh, and all the time this thing's ramping machines, but this net profit is static. Mm. And when you look at it from a regenerative point of view, in fact we were going backwards so bloody quickly mm. because the fundamentals were all wrong. And you're actually being mm, stimulated by external forces, more for their good than anybody else's. Mm. And when you get out of it and look back and just go, whoa, Look at that game going on there. Mm-hmm. And driven a lot by white men. Uh, they're really good at this. Uh, the thing with the regenerative thing that we're practising on our farm, or small farm, it's messy, complex, can't control it. Uh, it's, it's, it's unpredictable, phenomenally good for the environment, good for your mental health, a lot more insects. There's a whole lot of other people, a, a whole lot of other organisms now feeding off our land than just us. Mm. And it takes, a, it takes a long time to get your head around that. Mm, definitely. And the term regenerative may not be the best one in an economic sense in what we're talking about, but the principle is, and let me spell out how difficult this is. You know, we talked about the house where the child grows up and goes to school. When do you think we'll be able to measure that in an economic sense, <laughs> it, it's probably not for 20 years, 30 years maybe. Yep. But if that child that, you know, goes to university or, or doesn't even have to go to university is able to predict, you know, productively give back to society, what if they do go on and found a company yep. that then employs 100 people? Or employs three people, you know, but it, they're set on a life course that is different. Then it's really hard. The point is, it's really hard to measure that from an economic, in an economic way, to say, well, here's here's the level of impact that we had by building that house right there. But I think it's worth trying to do that, and we need to strive 
to set our standards at that level because that's what our great-great-grandchildren are calling us to. Yeah. We have to do that. And yeah. the picture that I like to give people, and it's, it's one that's been around for a long time, is are we planting seeds of trees that we will never sit in the shade of? And that's the lens, that's the perspective that we need to have rather than the really short term. Because the paradigm I've been talking about is very short term. It's quarterly profits. It's, you know, in your context, how much did we make on the farm? Yep. The long term regenerative type of concept is an intergenerational perspective. So it's really hard to measure, but we've got to try, we've got to do our best. And in your example, you know, on the farms, what if a stream had some cover planted by the water so that the native fish, the galaxids, were able to be alive and, and produce there? Because right now they're on the endangered species list. I just interviewed someone who's an expert in freshwater fish, and you know this is happening. So it's just an example, though, that it's really hard to measure that in terms of... GDP. And why is it... Why is it why is it important? You know, mm. we can just put other fish in there. Mm. You know, and and you know, it's so ecosystems are really are really complex and subtle. Mm. You know, and, and subtle things make a big difference. Yeah. Well, there's white bait regulations right now that are being discussed. So, do we care enough about these? Because white bait are native fish. But you can't <laughs> you can't see them. Yeah. <laughs> but how much do we care about them? Yeah. Because rivers are being overfished. And so do we set them apart as reserves? Do we have every couple of years that you can't fish there? There's not even, there's no, not even right now, a proposal to um, have like a, a measurement of how much was actually fished. So anyway, it's just an example yeah. of how do you measure these things. And that's what I enjoy, though, because we do have the chance to be a bit different here in Aotearoa. I think we do bring a different approach as you identified, we have a different way of thinking, or many of us do, and so we have a chance to do things a little bit differently. Going back to the housing, the complexity of that housing, I, I had first-hand experience of this about, I'm going to say, uh, maybe eight years ago, nine years ago, mm-hmm. and a young, a young guy, 13-year-old, um, uh, stole my car one night, and uh, I left it at the office and it broken in taking the car and for jaw ride and he took a company car which had sign writing on it and got called up, pulled up fairly quickly. I was driving back into work the next morning with my uh, wife and and uh, the cops rang and said, oh, we found your car. I'm going, I didn't know it was missing. <laughs> anyway, uh, I get this letter uh, and invited to a restorative justice process and I thought, oh, not, you know, but I thought, actually, I've never been to this, and I, I just thought, yeah, let's go and see what this is about. Mm. I walk in, and this young boy sitting there, and, and his mother on one side and sister on the other, and this kid's got his cap on and his head down, and they, there's social workers and cops sitting around, all the focus is on him. And they said, and they're reading out all the stuff he's been up to, right? And he's been really busy. This kid has been <laughs> really busy. And... Uh, uh, and it was very cool. They called me Mr. Harvey. And I'm going, oh, Mr. Harvey, that's pretty important. <laughs> and they said, now, Mr. Harvey, is there anything you'd like to say to, um, to Marcus? Huh? And I'm thinking, what do I say? Everybody's just read the writing. And I said, mate, why did you steal a Hyundai? Right? And he goes, lifts his head a bit. And, and I said, do you pick up any chicks in it? And he went, looks a bit more. He goes, nah. 
I said, my stink car for picking up chicks, you know. <laughs> and now he's looking at me, right? And I said, you have been busy. And you can see the cops look at me going, we've got a wacko here, right? Yeah, where's he and, going with this? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I had no idea. But I just thought, there's no, I said, you know, what's with this, you know, you've been really busy out late at night and well, what's that all about, I wonder? And I didn't, I didn't, I, was, I put it as a hypothetical because I thought, I'm not going to, you know, anyway. So, and we had a bit of a conversation and he sort of grunted a few times. And I was really interested in this. And uh, so then that was done, and then they have this, they're talking about getting him into a Big Brother, Big Sister program, but they didn't have any. And and I said to the uh, the cop at the back of the room, I said, mate, I'm a bit old to be his Big Brother, and I'm not Maori, but, you know, if, if you know, you want to, I'd love to take him on, right? Mm. And uh, so they checked me out and all that sort of stuff, and, and we... We took him on. And I worked with Marcus for about two or three years. And he was 13, he was out of school, he was on the streets, and his father had died, and and he would come and work for me. And we had we had a ball. Took him to the movies for the first time. I've never been to the movies, right? And he felt really awkward because he's this kid and, and you know, you're sort of shy of everybody being in, a, in this white person's space. You know, it was great learning for me. Mm. But, and we got him into school. We got him into school, and we got him into Hatapora, which is a, a, a local Māori boys' school, and it was awesome. And But his biggest challenge was his health. He was living in a really um, uh, damp state house. And I remember going along to his uh, kapahaka evening, mm. and I turned up, and I'm really excited about this, right? And I'm going, I'm going to the kapahaka and see him. And I'm saying, where is he? Oh, he's not here. Why wasn't he here? Oh, he's sick. And he was just sick so often from living in the stamp house. Mm. And he is a lovely kid. He is a lovely kid, with, you know. And as time's gone on, the mongrel mob have got hold of him now, and he's now a patch gang member and all that sort of care. He calls into the office from time to time and mm. whatever. And that pull of the gang and that... But his biggest problem was the bloody house he was living in mm. was just a cesspit. Mm. And so keeping him in school was really hard. Mm-hmm. And it just it broke my heart because, you know, the gang's won. And I've still got the line of communication going, mm-hmm. but the gang's won. Mm-hmm. And and I couldn't compete with that eventually, yeah. you know. But it was down to that house that mm. is making his family sick yeah. year after year after year. And people talk about it, but there's sort of loops of poverty, you know, the cycles of poverty. And yep. how do you how do you break it? How do you yep. come in and and maybe in, in that case having a clean, dry home would have been one of the key factors to then not being sick, to then going to school, to it, that, but that's the thing. What we're trying to do with the new paradigm is is not easy. Sometimes people are, think it's just a bunch of hippie sort of talk. Yep. You know, it's like, well, that's the. It's not. It's it's hard. It's yep. really really hard. Yep. And how do you measure impact across sectors? Yep. You know, there's 17 sustainable development goals. How do you measure um, life on the land and life under the sea? You know, and and the measures of um, economically, how how do you go about that? Yeah. How do you translate them across? Yeah. Um, so it's not an easy thing. There are people who are pushing the boundaries here and saying, no, no, we can measure it, but 
it takes time and, and people are still, you know, across the world trying to grapple with this. How do we measure impact? Yeah. And we intervened really strongly with this young man mm-hmm. and we were welcomed by the family uh, and uh, and we didn't quite get there. So there was a huge sense of failure at the end. Yeah. But, you know, he's been to prison numerous times since then and so forth and he calls in after when he gets out and he feels a sense of shame and all that sort of carry on. Mm. The... Uh, but we keep we keep talking and keep talking and so on. I'm still here, and mm-hmm. you know it's it's um, it's it's, uh, and I I often think I wonder what how many other steps would have needed to have happened, for to have a different outcome. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was many, maybe one or two other steps needed to be there, mm-hmm. um, to try and break that cycle because, uh, yeah, that's all we needed. And I think it's important to think through for people listening who don't come from that background, even in your own life, reflect on all the people who helped you along the way. Yeah. You know, how many lucky breaks did you get because your father knew someone who knew someone or your mother knew someone who knew someone, whatever it is, you know, like um, we, we take things for granted. We, well, I think it, this is the old paradigms of thought, which is I'm a self-made, yes. self-made, you know, it, it's all just happened because of my hard work which is true to a certain extent, but there are a lot of lucky breaks and a lot of coincidences that happen to certain people who come from certain parts of society, which is definitely not fair, but that's how it happens. So I think the point is, um, you know, even for people listening, how can we be performing that role for people who don't have those opportunities? How can we step in and provide an internship or a mentoring or do the big brother, big sister, or whatever it is, you know. Um, and in my case, the podcast that I've now done 230 episodes, so I'm interviewing people all the time. And the reason I'm doing it is because I want to amplify their stories. I'm sure it's very similar reasons for you. How can I amplify these stories of these amazing people who no one knows that they're in Aranui working with children who are not getting to school and who have never had really positive messages into their lives, you know. I'm thinking of Amy Marsden at Te Mapua in that particular case, yep. you know. So um, how do we help tell these stories in another way? And, yeah, my, my little contribution is through seeds. Um, and, 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 look, uh, Stephen, it's interesting. People say uh, from time to time with collective intelligence, do you have any famous people? Mm-hmm. I said, Mark, what's famous people? Yeah. What, what do you mean? You know, they're on TV. Does that make them famous? Yeah. Most of the meaningful work done in New Zealand, I was going to say the globe, are done by people who aren't famous. Mm. Uh, and they do it every day with no recognition and fine with that. Yeah. And that, but that's the, that question is a symptom of that paradigm, the old paradigm, which is all about measuring status and measuring how famous you are and things. And actually, the new paradigm I hope we're ushering in says we need the workers. We need the people who we never know their names, but behind the scenes, they are working really, really hard for the betterment of the wider society. Yep. And, and too often we um, assume that it has to be, you know, it, it, you have to start a billion-dollar company to, to be worthy of our respect and things. And, you know, like, 
you know, the founder of Facebook or, you know, these unique unicorn companies that have become amazing. But actually, I think at the end of the day, we need more and more people behind the scenes who we never know their names but are willing to sacrifice and really put in the, to make this, to help this new paradigm come into being. And, and in Maradim, they're called auntie. Mm. You know, it's we, we ran a... Uh, a seminar workshop thing about I'm not sure many years ago about how to engage with Maori in business, and we had we had uh, four or five great young Maori presenting, mm-hmm. and and one of the guys put up a slide, and it was at the end of a uh, business awards, mm-hmm. and he said, so if you wanted to do business with the CV here, which one would you talk to, right? And it was interesting, there were people there in gumboots and people in suits and so on, and these five or six guys and they were mm. trying to pick. And he went, well, none of them, because he said they're all posing. Uh, and they're like, what? And he said, you need to talk to auntie. Mm. You've got to get past them and you've got to get to the aunties to do the business. Yeah. And he was going, and you could see people in the room going, Oh, that's why we've made no progress because yeah. we've been talking to these guys here. But he's going, that's the, but behind the scenes, that's the people you don't see. Yeah. They're the ones you've got to get to. They're the ones that are going to make the decisions, mm. not this lot. Mm. Um, because they said this lot are in a, in a photo. The people that are actually doing the business are not in the photos. Mm. Yeah, it's, it was fascinating. I'll never forget that. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, if you look at my podcast, like I've interviewed a lot of people, like, probably more than 200 now you know there's 230 episodes total i do lots of bonus episodes with like my own thoughts and things so that's why the number is higher than the actual number of people interviewed but there's very few that you will know but but that's the point seeds look like they're dead you give them the right conditions and they'll grow in the same way the life stories that i'm capturing in my interviews which are similar to this you know we can get something out of them we can learn from them even if they're not on the front page yeah yeah because I, I think, um, and I've had this conversation with Anarchy, that I get overwhelmed when I think of what needs to be achieved. Mm-hmm. And when I get overwhelmed, my productivity and everything just drops away. Mm-hmm. And I tend to do nothing. Where, you know, going back to the B Corp thing, I like B Corp because I can do it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, as difficult as it is, it is, I can go, I can set myself to that and I can do that. And um, and and it's the small little things, and you compound those, you know, that you can, yeah, you yeah. can really do something with. And, and the key is that you do what you can do, I do what I can do. <laughs> yeah. And the way I like to think of it is that there's trains all heading in the same direction. They're not on the same tracks, but they're all heading towards the same general yeah. goal and so i'm here as a lawyer was... working and you're doing your thing yeah. and anik is doing his thing and and you know there's there's i can i can name lots of them all yeah. the people on my podcast are all headed in this sort of same direction so i can get encouragement from the fact that you're out there doing what you do and you know that i'm doing what i'm doing and um i think that's something that we need more of is cross fertilization and conversations where we're able to encourage each other, you know, that, hey, I, I, I know about this accountant who's doing this thing yep. and this environmental scientist, and, you know, we can actually spur each other on, you know, iron sharpening iron, 
working even harder, knowing that there's others on the same journey, even if it's on a parallel path rather than exactly the same path as us. I've got the great pleasure at the moment of mentoring a couple of uh, core people who are in a competition. It's a start-up competition, local thing, and Mm -hmm. they came through a process and so forth, and they are pitching on Thursday night, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. We had a meeting on Saturday, and they have failed miserably in preparing for this thing because what they're trying to do is around social change, and they're not getting the social change. And and uh, uh, and I know one of them listens to the podcast, but I, I won't mention her name because we don't have. It's, <laughs> it's uh, we. I'm not sure how it's going to go, but I've encouraged them to throw away the model. Don't follow the rules of mm-hmm. this competition. You've gone this far and it hasn't worked, and that's cool. And you've failed, and that's cool. And so now what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And and say so let's go, and I hear their pitch on Thursday morning, and I'm going to be intrigued to see what they've cooked up because they're both pretty brave. Yeah. And going, forget it. Forget about winning the competition, right? Let's go and just smash the model and do something that is unique and different and coming up from a purpose, impact, heart, we're going to make a difference, mm-hmm. but we're not going to win the competition, and we don't care. Mm-hmm. And I think they might do it. Yeah. You know? And I'm really excited by this, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be sitting there on the night, hopefully, uh, sitting there, and they'll get up, and I'll be looking over at the judges going, <laughs> no, this is, we're not going to play, because I've been one of those judges, I'm going yep. to say, we're not playing your game this year, we're right. going to do it differently and totally disrupt the bottle, yep. and steal the night and not win the prize, and that's cool. Yeah. But it will be the most memorable presentation, I think, because it's going to connect with people people's hearts. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited by that. Just going, Yeah, we don't have to play by the rules. Yeah. Uh, and it's a realization that you don't you know, you don't have to win everything. You don't no. have to have success the first time. People have this illusion that that you touch something and it turns to gold immediately. But actually, in my experience talking to people, there's vast quantities of what you know, quote marks, failure happened before. And the failure, I love Michael Mayle who did Cookie Time. He described it as failure is the compost for the new ideas. You have to have failure to be able to have success. So that's an interesting way, you know, paradigm of thinking about it, that you actually need to go through those things to then be able to know how to handle success, to be able to work out what it is that's going to work. It's the best definition I've ever heard of failure, Mm. compost. I love it, yeah. Well, his interview is one of the best ones because he's he's a fantastic guy, hugely involved in all kinds of things. But he said, you know, I I did this thing and it failed. I did this thing and it failed. It wasn't until my third or fourth venture that I finally got something that, you know, quote marks, success. Got some traction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And now, so, yeah. so Stephen, if we if we come forward to the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, mm-hmm. uh, once again, congratulations on uh, being awarded that. Mm-hmm. Tell us what is this thing mm-hmm. that you understand? Well, I, you know, actually, I view it as being uh, a natural extension of what we were just talking about, which is people are on a journey in life and they're heading 
in a direction. And so I view the Edmund Hillary Fellowship as an example of this, of curating and co- and bringing together people who are very similar, all doing extremely different things. So there might be a rocket scientist who is, you know, sending rockets up into space. And there might be somebody who's all about the oceans and how do we save the oceans and make the oceans safe for marine life. And there might be, you know, you get the point. It's, mm. it's like every possible sector you can think about, there will be a fellow who's involved in that and sometimes several of them. Um, and so I view it as they've, there's a process to apply and, and be selected. So they've gone through this curation process of pulling people together who I would think the vast, vast majority would immediately understand this concept of a new paradigm that I've been talking about. They're, they're not happy with the old ways of doing things. They actually want to move forward in whatever they're doing in a very regenerative, generative way. And then as for the details, because I'm aware some people listening wouldn't be familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, and I think the details are really actually quite important because most, most, people, most people won't know what this thing is. It's not yeah. well known yet. Yeah. So basically um, everyone will know Edmund Hillary. So he's kind of the, the, the model that um, a lot of it has been based on in terms of his attitude and, and the way he approaches things. Um, and I should say I don't claim to be an expert in this. I didn't help set it up or anything, so this is my interpretation of it. But basically about three years ago, um, they started to award um, people from overseas who would be given what's called um, impact visas to come to New Zealand. It's a form of entrepreneurial visa. So to come to New Zealand, if you have enough um, backing, you can come into New Zealand as an entrepreneur or an investor. So this is like a variation of that type of visa. Um, and these people from around the world are given the chance to come to New Zealand, start their ventures based from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and yet having a global impact. So, for example, Emmeline and Eric um, Dostrom, um, they're based here in Christchurch. They're all about space. So their focus, they've set up something called Space Space, and they're connecting people involved in the space industry. So their view is to facilitate that, to get people talking and networks happening. And they're based here in Christchurch, but they're talking globally. You know, So it's, it's about centering people, bringing them to New Zealand to be based, and to then the flow-on impact of having these amazing people come um, will be new companies that are started, new investments, that also then flows back to the countries that they came from. So it's a very global perspective. Um, I think there's about 532 fellows, so that's the sort of the number, and there's eight cohorts. And the initial cohorts, there was like 25, 26 people, but the more recent ones, there's been more that have come through. So that's the basic summary. And then about 20% of the people chosen um, are Kiwi-based fellows. So we, you and I are examples of that, where we're already here within the society, we have networks, and one of our roles, I view it, is that we're here to help those people from overseas coming to New Zealand to get networks, to get established, to work out who they should talk to, and to understand the ecosystem here. Um, yeah, but across those eight cohorts, there's huge variety of 
background and some are investors, some are entrepreneurs, you know, some are professionals, some are storytellers, like pretty much name a category and there, there will be somebody who does that. And it's funny, isn't it? Because more and more I'm drawn to diversity. The more mm-hmm. diverse something is, the more I'm drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things for me with the, with the, with the fellowship was uh, uh, Ed's uh, values, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that it's embedded in Maori culture, and um, that's a big part of it, mm-hmm. uh, the diversity... And for me personally, to because I've never had the opportunity to to work globally, mm-hmm. and so it gives me a chance to connect with people uh, on a global scale. So mm-hmm. that's a huge motivator for me. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I'm always I've, I've always got this fear of you know, am I starting to think that you know, I'm sort of I think I'm getting quite good at this, you know? <laughs> and and it's a, it's something that's alive in me uh, and I know when I hang out with people who because I'm not I, I, I'm not a believer in inspiring other people it's funny I go no you, that's your job mm-hmm. inspire yourself mm-hmm. and and that's your work to do not somebody else's work and when so I've got inspirational speakers I don't actually don't believe in that mm-hmm. um, however uh, you know there was a call today with Tim Ferriss who's a podcaster as well, a little mm-hmm. bit more advanced than you and I. But um, he has a few more listeners than us, but not not many. <laughs> not many. But listening to him today, yeah. what really uh, I connect with was how down to earth the guy was, mm-hmm. right? And he was talking to uh, there was a number of them. Yosef was on the call, and yeah. Shay Wright, and whatever. But the guy was—he uh, didn't pick up a big ego. Uh, and he was really down to earth, and he was talking about uh, you know, this e-commerce and so forth, and and talking at a very startup basic level. And one of the things he said was that you know don't aim at these unicorn business. That's not your work. Mm-hmm. You know, success can look really quite. Um, I'm trying to think modest. Success can be very modest, and some of that's the most satisfying mm-hmm. work. And I'm going, here we go, this is coming from Tim Ferriss. You know? yep. Yep. Where, and I thought, uh, I thought he seemed like a really nice guy. Yeah. You know? Well, that's been my experience so far, is that everybody I've connected with is, I'm going to use the word humble. You know, they, they've achieved, they've done amazing things. Like, without, without any question to be a part of it, they're doing some pretty cool stuff. Yep. But um, I know for me, there's kind of an ancient saying, which is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And that's been something that's echoed in my own self is don't put yourself on a pedestal. You know, Mm. don't think of yourself as more than you are. And I think that that spirit seems to be throughout this Edmund Hillary Fellowship as well, which I think is an echo of the man himself. Because if you read about him and you read some of his quotes, you know, in I read the obituary when he passed away recently, and basically he was saying, "Well, I kind of I just climbed a mountain, and then the media made me into some something." You know, he was very, very modest, very humble, 
guy by all accounts. So it's uh, it's definitely a big part of this. And the induction that we both went through relatively recently, you know, it's very infused with Te Ao Māori and and thinking about stewardship and and what's our role here? You know, mm. what what are we here for? How are we giving back rather than how much can I take? How can I? So again, it c- keeps coming up, but it's this new paradigm of thinking about the world rather than how much profits can we extract? It's how can we give back as well? I met Ed once, uh, and uh, I was um, our local school had was in an area that grew rhododendrons, and I was involved in the school, and it was middle of winter. It was pouring, you know, it was wet, mm. and uh, Ed was being flown in, and and how do we get him from the helicopter to this place? So, uh, and I had to drive across on a farm ute, and I had to drive across and pick him up mm-hmm. in the ute, and I cleaned my ute and made it all tidy. <laughs> it's so, so funny. Yeah. And and all the time I'm thinking, oh, I hope I don't get stuck. You know, it would be so embarrassing <laughs> to have this iconic guy yep. and I go and get my Toyota Ute stuck in the paddock. And all the time I'm just going, don't get stuck, don't, don't get, get stuck. stuck. Yep. Uh-huh. And that was all I could think of. But what uh, the thing that really struck me was he was, you know, he mm. was almost embarrassed mm. to have these people there and he was bringing another rhododendron from the Himalayas and mm. and he, was, he felt uh, bordering on embarrassed. And he was well on in his years at that point. So I thought, you've been doing this for 40 years mm. and you're still not comfortable with it. Uh, and I couldn't get over He's a really big man. Mm. And I thought, he's not even built for climbing. Mm. You know, climbers are normally that, you know, small, wiry people. And I, I looked at him, I thought, how did you, how did you do this? Mm. You know, it was quite, uh, quite unusual. But I, I look, I feel um, incredibly... Uh, honoured to be part of the fellowship mm-hmm. because uh, being associated with his name, you know, is just mm-hmm. sensational. But it was it was meeting these people. We had in my group, we had a young woman from uh, Nigeria mm-hmm. and she, and I won't pronounce her name because I'll totally butcher it, but she, I'm, I'm going to say she was in her 30s, and she started a shoe manufacturing. She was the biggest shoe manufacturer in Nigeria, and she employed employed just women because women can't get jobs in Nigeria. Mm. So she started this thing, and you know whatever. And I'm just looking at going, looking at her, and going, "What have you been through to, mm. for that to get to this point?" Mm. And uh, in the in our group, they said, "Oh, so half, do you want to speak first? You know, and I said, "Look, white men have been speaking first forever." And I said, no, you speak first. Mm. And you could see her going, this is, she wasn't used to that. Right. And, that was, yeah. it was a, and she really appreciated it. And she said, well, hang on, just give me a moment here. So, yeah. you know. And, uh, yeah, just the sheer diversity. And you go into those little groups and go, who have we got here? Yes. You know? <laughs> and I don't even want to talk. You know, I want everybody else to talk and go, yep. tell me what have you done? Yeah, you know, yeah. What are you doing? What are you working on? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about this climate change initiative, which yeah. is incredible. Or tell me about this new robotics that will help explore Mars. Or yeah. tell me about this. Yeah, it goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing we talked about measurements earlier on in the podcast, and I think this is an interesting point for EHF for Edmund Hillary Fellowship is, I think what it's done is it's brought together people, and 
allowed them to start mixing and connecting. And so I think some of the measurements or the, the results won't be seen for possibly decades to come. And it would be a fascinating thing to do a longitudinal study, you know, like the Dunedin study where they had yeah. the, the children, you know, and monitoring them over the time. Because I think there will be connections and things that result from what it is, but you may not see the impact for five years or ten years or whatever it is. So I wonder if anybody is actually embarking on a study of this. Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Mm. Because it would be, and I, I, you know, the government will have some measurements that they'll want back, and I think there is a time frame for that. Yeah. And... Uh, well, it was run as a pilot project. So the first three years, I believe, is now finished. So yep. they're not accepting new applications at the moment, but it's now being assessed to say what what are the... But this is my point, is it? you can say, well, this many of the fellows came to New Zealand and here's how many businesses were started or that type of thing. But actually there's there's beyond the monetary measures, there's connections, there's influence, there's a lot of flow on which will come from the organization, yep. you know, pulling them together. Yep, absolutely. And it's, it's uh, you know, I love the, the term, the incubation nation that they talk about within the, the mm-hmm. fellowship. The thing that, because one of my concerns right now, and we had a presentation last week from a woman, Kate Sutton, she's come back from, she works for Nesta, and she's uh, in London, she's come back looking to settle here, mm-hmm. and she's finding it un- being un- slightly underwhelmed being back in New Zealand, and mm-hmm. she's finding that there's a, a lack of ambition mm-hmm. uh, within New Zealanders right now, t- and, mm-hmm. and, and it's concerning her. And I have said to Kate, we need to talk and we need to get you into mm-hmm. um, some different networks and so forth. And I said, I yeah. think you've been pitching to some people that are pulling you down and we need to get you out of there and start because and nurture you to keep those spirits up. Mm-hmm. We've got 250,000 expats coming back apparently, COVID re- refugees and next wee while. And the last thing I'd want is for them to feel underwhelmed and we don't get them to settle here mm-hmm. or we don't... St- not step up to their space because that's, but we actually embrace them and listen to them and see what they see different. Yeah. And I think that's going to be a challenge for us, yeah, um, to cope with that. Uh, and we, because we can do, you know, this America's Cup. You know, I'm not a yachty, but I love that competition mm. because I look at it and go, we're not a wealthy country, but we are doing it differently, and we're competing at a really cutting-edge science, you know, um, innovation space. Mm-hmm. Go, look, we can do it. Yeah. It's right there. Um, and my hope is that the, the fellowship, you know, the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, in a way it could be a model that others who are coming back are encouraged by it. And, you know, it, we can probably put the link in the show notes to Edmund Hillary Fellowship and people can look at it and see, you know, this the is types happening. of people that are coming yeah. and are part of it. Um yeah, I mean, just here in Christchurch, I've done a list. I think there's about 26 people at the moment who are based here. Um, so, you know, we, we're having catch-ups and, and meet-ups and things. And, and as more of them come over, because of COVID, it's all been impacted in yep. terms of visas and timing and everything. But the idea is that many others would also come and be at least based in New Zealand for some of the year and bring the wealth of networks and contacts they have in Silicon Valley in 
Moscow, in you know wherever it is in the world, that New Zealand could actually become a center yeah. in a really exciting way. Yeah, mm. Stephen, I've I've got a um, uh, laugh at this that you know in the in the because you were in a different um, induction group from me, but you yeah. had to put your name in your city. Yeah. Right? And so I had people from Shanghai and Beijing and The Hague and uh, uh, and I can't remember the city in Nigeria and there's you know different water and I put Fielding <laughs> and people going where's Fielding I said well you know you've you've got Auckland and you've got Wellington yeah I said we're the city in between right <laughs> it's just like and, but I I did I, I would have loved to have taken a photo of that and just gone you know this is yeah, yeah. this is crazy yeah. Stephen, what uh, to round up the conversation? What do you want to any any other topic you want to drop on the end of this conversation? Well, I think hopefully people get the the sense of what I'm doing and what I'm about. So um, I'm actually putting out a lot of content at the moment, and um, if people are interested in any of these sorts of thoughts that we've been talking about, a paper just came out last week, which I co-wrote with Natalie Reitman White, who's in cohort five Mm -hmm. so it's an example of that cross-fertilization and we had a number of other co-authors as well who brought their really amazing insights as well so that's looking at steward ownership and asking how can we structure ourselves in a new zealand context in a way that amplifies stewardship and the ideas of intergenerational thinking from a legal perspective so a bunch of us are lawyers and then um, susan from um, uh, oregon University, she contributed, and Natalie's based over in America, and so it's quite an international perspective. But that's an example of a resource or a paper that now exists in the world. Um, but I can only tell people that I know about it, <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, and then this week, um, I've been helping co-author a paper about impact investing. So that's an overview of the impact investing space in New Zealand, and we have four case studies: so New Zealand Green Investment Finance, Tyndall Foundation community finance and foundation north so we wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of what does impact investing actually mean for an entity can so, you get, can you give us a, a quick over overview of what it is now so people yeah sure so impact investing it's part of this new paradigm <laughs> and it's basically saying when you come to invest you don't just look at the financial return you look at the other metrics that are involved so the the housing ex- was an example that I gave before, um, and traditionally, like a, a Kiwi Saver type of, you know, they would be quite cautious. They would want to invest in things that they knew they were getting a return on from a financial perspective. But this is saying, you know, it's a call from the new paradigm to say, take your twenty million dollars and actually invest it into social housing, because your members actually care about that as much as the financial returns. So Generate KiwiSaver, a shout out to them, is the first KiwiSaver um, you know, fund which has actually put their money where their mouth is and, and gone in and done that. So that's what impact investing is. So in, for some of your listeners, in a traditional way, you would think of a group like Foundation North or Wellington Foundation or you know these big groups with lots of money um, or Tyndall Foundation, you know, you would go to them and you would basically, it's kind of a very um, subservient relationship because you go with your cap in hand and you say, please, please, sir, give me $10,000 to do this money yep. in the community. 
So rather than having that model and saying we fill in the application forms, we get $10,000 to go to this thing, and we never, you know, we report back, yep. but there's minimal contact. It's actually saying instead of giving 10000 we invest 10000 and we want to see a return. Like we want the money back so that we can use it to help another organization. And also we care about how many women you teach English to because that's what you're about. So that's what impact investing is. And it's, it's taking off in terms of a concept that people understand. And so this paper provides three parts. What is impact investing? What's the state of it in New Zealand? And what are some practical case studies? Mm. So it's just another example, I guess, of an output that's you know coming out. And then the other hat that I wear a lot is I'm the deputy chair of the charity services sector group. So that gets me involved in charities a lot. So I was just on the committee that helped organize a conference for charities. So we've put out all seven hours of the audio of charity issues. Um, so that's out there freely available. So I guess if people are wanting to explore, there's a lot of content. And um, I've got a website called theseeds.nz, which okay, is so where we'll, I... we'll put that link to the, yep. at the bottom of this. Yep. That'd be great. And um, I try to put out that content there. And I've been doing my podcast now for three years. Every Tuesday morning, I try to do a new episode. And they're similar to this, lots of just talking. Um, they're not fixed in time. I don't talk about contemporary issues. What I want to find out is people's journeys. Yep. What's First half is where are you from? Second half is what do you do today? And then the links between those two. So they typically go for 50 minutes, something like that. So they're quite long-form podcasting. Um, yeah, but the website is theseeds.nz. If you do the maths, it, it's actually I put out more than one a week um, because I put out bonus if I'm you know, I'm doing an impact panel this coming Friday and I'll put that as audio and you know I'll, I'll talk to you about whether I can take some of this and put it out as audio and you know like just looking for any source that I think will be helpful for people. But that's um, just hitting ninety two thousand listens, so right it's on. gaining traction and. You know, not like Tim Ferriss level, but <laughs> there's a for New Zealand, it's not too bad. You know? No, well, I, look, I remember, I remember when you first started. I mean, ninety two thousand is huge. That's yeah. really, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So just keep, uh, you know, a long movement in the same direction, yeah. <laughs> slow movements, but always heading in the same way, and then eventually you get somewhere. We're going to finish on that. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Thank you for the chance, though. I really appreciate it. And it's, as I said at the start, it's so exciting for me to see you taking it forward and feeling like now there's somebody else out there who's, you know, taken that concept. And, 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 and look, it's interesting. It. We've, we've got a number of members uh, now who have. It's interesting. We've had, I've had uh, uh, two people I've interviewed have, have now uh, got their own uh, podcast program. And um, they're not necessarily. Uh, consistent. I'm, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. um, because the thing that I am really interested in is this consistency mm -hmm. thing. So we put it out every two weeks, mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to do it every week. And the team at the office just went, "No, that's too much." I'm like, oh. <laughs> and and uh, every fortnight is good for us, uh, and that works fine. And we can integrate that into the thing. And uh, for me, it's mostly ninety percent of the interviews are promoting. And featuring our members, and mm -hmm. and I really enjoy that because yeah. I get to know them better and and so forth. And it's it's uh it's really interesting just hearing what people are doing. 
Yeah. Uh, and you've got to be, you've got to concentrate, which is not necessarily a strong point of mine. <laughs> but when you're in the zone, you've got to actually listen and and hear. And people do amazing stuff. Yeah, they do. You know, and a special acknowledgement to you to the effort that you've gone to following my advice, which is if you're if you can do it in person, because we're looking at each other in yep. the eye right now, and I think you do get to deeper levels than if you do it by Zoom. Not that Zoom is a bad thing, but there is something about being in the same physical presence as another person that yep. means you are able to go a bit deeper. And so I, yeah, I applaud you for have, taking on my advice about that. And <laughs> it's awesome to see. And it's great if there's grandchildren podcasts starting as well. Yeah, awesome. there you go. It's just, it's, <laughs> the, the, the problem with carting the stuff around the country, getting through uh, the, the, uh, the scanners, is right. yeah. like... What is this thing? Yeah. You know, what are you doing? <laughs> obviously, in the scanner, it looks quite sinister. Yeah. Uh, and when I first went through and they wanted to pull it all out, I went, oh, don't do that. Don't yeah. pull it out because yeah. it's really difficult to pack away. Yeah. yeah. Stephen, keep up the good work and thank you for your time. Uh, and, you know, we do follow your podcast and go, oh, my God, he's a machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's... Uh, and it's great to have your expertise in this zone uh, and, yeah, having a lawyer who knows the space. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a privilege to be on, and that's that's what I'm trying to do is to think in, you know, when I'm 95, looking back at my life, how can I have added value? So, yeah, um, yeah it's great, and I appreciate the chance to share some of my story. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview that Harv did with me. I hadn't really shared a huge amount of my own journey before, so it was fun to reflect and have the chance to talk about purpose and what the future might hold. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, and make sure to check out Harv's podcast, Stuff That Matters Now. Until next time!